Almighty God, we pray that you will open my mouth to proclaim your word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that this same Spirit will open our hearts to receive your holy gospel and write your desires on our hearts as you have promised. All this, Holy Father, we pray in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns forever and ever with you and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it was a couple weeks ago we were having trouble with our garage door. It's, uh, we, you would have to keep your thumb, on, it, it wouldn't shut from the remote, you would have to keep your thumb on the interior button all the way till it got to the ground, and then even after that it would start coming back up, and I'd have to put it on the manual track, put it down, put it back on the remote track. And, yeah, you know, there were struggles in the world, obviously. This was an annoyance, but it was an annoyance we wanted to clear from our lives. And so I was calling around to a couple of different garage door companies and, uh, and sweating through the obvious uh, possible service charges per hour. Uh, when one of them very kindly said it could be an issue of the sensors. And so upon that, I promptly went out into the garage and saw that one of the sensors had been knocked off its slot. So I just placed it back on problem solved. But it had been one of those things. I thought it was this massive, massive problem from my vantage point, And yet the issue was clearly right before me. Uh, And sometimes having that truth in front of us in a biblical narrative can still be very easy to miss. And our approach, uh, some people's approach at least, to the gospel passage for today from Luke, which will be our consideration, uh, can be like that. And we can tend to reduce this story of the dinner party for Jesus, Mary, and Martha to um, j- just to a directive of be like Mary, don't be like Martha. And, and that's basically it. However, I think what Luke designed in writing his gospel was the focus in this narrative at least uh, is on Jesus. It's squarely upon him. Three times within five verses, he is called Lord, twice by Luke, once by Martha. Well, that means something if, it is that, if that title is that concentrated. Uh, and what is Jesus in his role as Lord doing but giving us his word uh, and, and telling us how important it is to receive his word and his instruction? See, our reaction to his word can vary, but this passage's spotlight is on Jesus, not on us. It is a revelation from God about Jesus, so let us ask as we go forward, what is Jesus' action in these few verses show us about himself in the midst of our living under the authority of his word? Well, uh, we see in verses 38 and 39 that Jesus makes a stunning choice. Martha welcomes him into their house uh, as the role of host, and she starts being busy with a lot of different planning and preparation and, 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 uh, and putting the food together. And her sister Mary plops herself down at Jesus' feet, practically ignores what Martha is doing in the kitchen, uh, and instead listens to his teaching. 
Now, if we're looking at, at this uh, at this passage, we think, well, that is a good approach for Mary. She is avoiding her sister. That's a little bit problematic. But if we look at that, we miss what it, what uh, what what comes into this passage as a backstory that Luke intends. Backstories can be very important. Okay, context is, is critical, uh, so some might say. There, there was a time in, in my grandfather's pastoral career as a Presbyterian minister um, that they had moved from Pennsylvania out to Kansas to a church there for three years, and then they moved back to Pennsylvania. Well, uh, Grandpa, in every year that he was a pastor, wrote up at the end of the year a pastoral report. It would detail many different things. Uh, he would track the average attendance at morning service, evening service, midweek prayer service, uh, di- different uh, budgetary items. Uh, different, but uh, one key thing was the number of pastoral visits he he made uh, to different people in the congregation. Now, a pastoral visit, by the way, according to Grandpa, was a time when you en- the pastor enters the home and scripture is read and prayer is offered. And because my dad gave me a copy of all these reports, they're very fascinating and full of humor, like the time that he asked for a bathroom to be put into the church manse, Um, (laughs) believe it or not. Uh, But uh, when they moved from Kansas back to Pennsylvania, I noticed that uh, the number of pastoral visits he made every year quadrupled. And you might look at that thinking, well, he became a much more conscientious pastor towards his congregation, getting around and meeting people and everything. But what happened was not that. The, bad, the true backstory was Grandpa, when, whenever he would go in and visit a family, would not, not count that as one pastoral visit anymore. If there was a husband, a wife, and two kids, he had just made four pastoral visits. And so he adjusted the statistics accordingly. So that looks like he's a lot busier, but if you know the backstory of how he recalculated, recalibrated everything, and I'm not saying Grandpa was disingenuous, it's just the way he did statistics. Uh, but, uh, but, but then that takes on a whole new meaning. The backstory of this passage takes on a whole new meaning if we scroll further back in Luke chapter 10. Uh, first of all, there is a social component to it before we even get to, to what's in the text. Jesus is portrayed here as speaking to a woman. Okay, I don't say that as a bad thing. Okay, it's just in first century Judaism, that would have been a stunning thing for a rabbi, for a teacher of Jesus' caliber uh, to, to speak to, to instruct a woman in the Word of God. Uh, it was not forbidden. Yeah, according to, to Jewish tradition, but it was unusual for a rabbi to do it. In social circles, that he would have been viewed as lowering himself. Um, so there's a social component to it, but there is a divine component in this stunning choice at work here that throws light on the events. Back in verse 21 of this chapter, after Jesus has sent out 72 followers, two by two, on a short-term mission trip, they've come back with all sorts of reports, and Jesus says in a prayer to God his Father, I thank you, my Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and from the understanding and given them to 
children. For this is your good will. Then soon after that, uh, at the beginning of, of the moment, which we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you're familiar with that story, there is a lawyer pressing Jesus on the issue of eternal life and, and, and doing good. Uh, and Jesus says to, um, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And, uh, and he, he, the lawyer presses this, wanting to justify himself and his wisdom, says, who is my neighbor? Well, the lawyer there, according to Luke, it seems, is being held up as one of these wise and understanding uh, people that are not part of who Jesus is looking for as being those who are receptive. But Mary here is one of those children that he describes in verse 21, listening to what Jesus reveals, openly submitting to his teaching. You see... What Jesus is getting at is the same thing that Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It is not your social ranking. It is not your advanced learning. It's not how much time you spent within the walls of a church. But Paul points out, he says, God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. So if you happen to be a follower of Jesus, you're one of those babes, you're one of those little kiddos who listen to him because that's who he wants and you're, you are that way, not because you have pulled yourself up grasping spiritual rungs of achievement, but because Jesus has sovereignly opened your heart so that you will be childlike and receptive to his word. If anything, you and I, those of us who are followers of Jesus, that should shed a lot of arrogance, either real arrogance or potential pride, and it should breed a load of humility. That Jesus' stunning choice would include you and me. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this becomes a kind invitation to you. That you do not have to become someone so that you can get Jesus, but you receive Jesus and his word when he seeks you. Are you open to that, to his stunning choice as Lord. And then Martha um, gets it with uh, Jesus' sobering correction. And this isn't primarily given so that Martha would understand, but so that we could understand today. Verses 40 through 42. Uh, Luke says, Martha was distracted with much serving. Notice Luke doesn't say Martha was doing much serving, but she was distracted. It's an intentional word there. Uh, and so she ends up getting in Jesus' face, uh, and, and, and she puts forth a word um, that, that designates his authority of Lord, but she criticizes him for his apathy, her perceived apathy, and calls him to action. She, she says, Lord, do you not care? 
Okay, so she's going up to Jesus and saying, I don't think you really care about what I'm going through. Uh, and do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then, imperative, to help me. And I, I don't want to spend so much time on Martha's you know, verbal grenade there as much as I do on Jesus' response. First of all, let's notice what it, not, it, it is not. Jesus doesn't say, Martha, you better step off get out of my grill and talk to the hand. He doesn't say that. Now, would he be justified? Hmm, probably so. But Jesus' correction in complete opposite to Martha's action is tender, it is targeted, and it is true. It is tender because he says, Martha, Martha. Okay, he, he doesn't do, you know, comes when, when our, our kids are in trouble and we use their first and middle names and, and they realize, uh-oh, <laughs> it's over. Uh, but he's like, Martha, Martha. It's, it, it's, it, it's not so much exasperation as, as it is an invitation uh, to receive correction. Uh, it's dripping with affection and it's targeted. He gets to the matter of what her problem is. He says, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And he doesn't say these are bad things. Getting dinner ready is a good thing. Jesus would say, we've got to eat. And I would say, they ate after they were done with this. But Jesus is... I understand also he's not elevating what Mary is doing, saying that should be done 24-7 at the expense of everything else. He is not saying that attending a Bible study is intrinsically more valuable than fixing a meal and showing hospitality towards other people because Christians are called to both. There is, if we might use this terminology, there is no sacred secular divide in our approach to life. All of life under Jesus is holy. And whatever God commands us to do is good. It just means, according to Jesus, he says, Martha, something's going on here. And I want us to to recognize what you're doing is not truly necessary. I don't want it to mushroom. And that's what he gets to when he says, but one thing, one thing is necessary. And I don't think Jesus was talking about the menu items. I don't think that Martha had three entrees and Jesus is saying, I think you just got to cut it. Let's just go with, with the pot roast. Because all this, he's not saying that one item. He's talking about what, 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 uh, her sister has demonstrated in her approach to, to the word. It doesn't mean that, by, by the way, also, uh, that, that you pour yourself into Scripture so much at the expense of all your other obligations and callings. This does not set, for example, Christian ministry on a higher plane than other what people may call ordinary works. You know, we've talked about no secular sacred divide already. But 
The question Jesus is asking us through his correction of Martha is, are we distracted by the things we believe to be urgent at the expense of abiding in Christ and dwelling in his teaching? So it's not that you avoid in participating in what you have before you. God has that in your life for a reason. But it does mean that this sobering correction that he gives to Martha comes to us today. Are you abiding in Jesus? Are you seeking his counsel and encountering his word? Not as a way of marking off a checklist saying, all right, I... Did all the readings in morning prayer today. Good for me. It's not that. But it's because abiding in Christ and in his teaching, in his word, makes you more effective in your work, in your other kingdom areas of life. That goes for whether you're in teaching, whether you are in sales, whether you are in management, if, if you work at Boeing, if you work for the government, if you're in the medical field, if you're in finance, whatever God calls you to do, abiding in Christ and in your word is the oxygen that we take into all our endeavors. And that's what Jesus is getting at with Martha and by extension to us. So where are we allowing our actions? to become distractions rather than reactions to what Jesus desires to do in and through us. And all of this, both the Jesus' stunning choice and his sobering correction, leads us to recognize Jesus' sure and steady comfort. He says Mary's selection, Mary has chosen the good portion. Abiding in Christ, listening to his word, that he says, that will not be taken from her. And every disciple, every follower of Jesus who has that passion, as Mary does, that we, we, we have that promise of Jesus, that that will not be taken away from us. So as we... Think about that. Is that your comfort? Is that my comfort? That whatever we enjoy can be taken from us in a heartbeat. Friends, family, job, health, whatever. That you can lose a lot of things, but if you can firmly hold to Jesus' promise of himself and what he offers in his word, is that enough? Do you have his soul-strengthening help when all else fails? That remains with you. And I admit, yes, I get it. That's not an instant problem solver. Okay? Scripture is not to be used as a therapeutic remedy for quick effects in terms of that expectation. There is a lot of stuff that's more long-term, and there must be patience. But what Jesus is getting at here is, even if it's not an instant problem solver, Abiding in him and receiving his word gives you a solidness on the path of your journey 
so that you can know that your existence is not a bunch of baloney. And the incredible good news on top of all that is that Jesus never tires of reminding us of his promises or of his delight in us. And those reminders dance in a thousand places. Is uh, Charles Spurgeon, um, who experienced this in 1854. Spurgeon at that time was 20 years of age, and he was in his first year uh, serving as a pastor at the New Park Street Chapel in London, just south of the Thames. And this was the time, if you know your history, when, when there was a massive cholera epidemic. Uh, that broke out in, in London. Uh, and at first, uh, he threw himself into his, his, his work, his labor, his visitation with a lot of vigor and youthful energy. But over time, as he was at the bedside of a dying person or conducting a funeral pretty much daily, Spurgeon felt his energy and his resolve to give away. And he described himself as weary in body, and sick at heart. And there was one day during that year uh, that he was walking down the great Dover Road, walking home from overseeing a funeral, and he just happened to look into the window of a shoemaker's shop. And there was a massive broadside, a huge piece of paper written um, in, in the window with bold handwriting upon it. And it said these words, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come near thy dwelling. Those are the words from Psalm 91 verses 9 and 10, and Spurgeon said they took immediate effect. As Spurgeon writes, faith appropriated the vision as her own. I felt secure, refreshed, and I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. Never do we lack for promises of God in time of need. Never shall we lack for a Savior who is Lord over every path we take every moment we inhabit, and every trial we endure. May we, those of Jesus' marvelous choosing and needed correction, experience his sure comfort this day and always. Amen. Amen. Surely, Lord Jesus, your provision is one that we need every day and every hour. May we submit joyfully to your loving lordship and receive the promise of your word that makes us faithful in our various callings. May your Holy Spirit always convict us of our need of you and work within us that which is pleasing in your sight, O Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.